Hi, thank you so much for joining us today in the next episode of the Women in Family Law podcast. My name is Malvika Jagan-Mohan and I'm really pleased to be joined today by Helen Conway. We're going to be having a chat about well-being and mental health during lockdown amongst lawyers. Before we do that, I'm going to introduce Helen really quickly. Helen's a district judge in Liverpool. She's also a trained coach and an advocate for workplace wellness issues. And we've gotten to know each other um, over the last few months because of our mutual interest in mental health and well-being amongst legal professionals. Helen, are you there? I am. I'm delighted to be here, Malvika. Um, I'm very pleased to introduce you to the listeners as well. Um, Malvika is a new friend of mine, but she's also a barrister at St Ives Chambers in Birmingham and on the founding board of the Women and Family Law Group. Um, Like myself, she's had some serious skirmishes with mental health issues in the uh, recent past and joins me in having a real concern about wellness issues in the legal profession. So to kick things off, obviously coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever you want to call it, has had a a massive impact on our day-to-day lives. Helen, you're quite, um, you have a very interesting role because you're on the welfare committee of the Association of District Judges, is that right? That's right. So you have a, a point of contact really with the bench and you're getting probably live feedback and comments and experiences from judges about how they're coping. Um, what have you seen since we've been in lockdown? I think what I've seen it very much mirrors what the um, the bar and the solicitors and, and indeed people who are appearing in person are seeing uh, across the whole um, legal system really because it's affecting all of us uh, in the same way. Um, lots of concern about the health and safety aspects of working online, um, inadequate equipment, but also the eye strain, stress and um, and the back strain from, from working at home in uh, chairs that aren't orthopedically suitable and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and just the general strain of uh, working with uh, different values going on at the same time, different roles clashing. So having children that you're trying to homeschool at the same time as you're trying to appear in a hearing, um, it's sharing spaces that aren't designed for working in that way. Lots of um, anxieties and, and difficulties coming up around that. And I think also what I'm seeing is just the impact of having had really fast change imposed very suddenly Um because I, I think if you think about it, we're a profession that doesn't do change very well at all. You know, we, we've mm. all got a horsehair wig somewhere in our uh, in our cupboard. Um, and um, to have it Im- imposed very fast can cause a lot of uh, anxiety. And that's definitely something I'm seeing a lot of. Yes, I mean, I, I'm single and I don't have uh, children, so I don't have any caring responsibilities. And I don't know how people manage it. Charlotte Bradley has written for our blog from Kingsley Napley um, about being a, a mum, a, a homeschool teacher uh, and a solicitor and she said that it's one of the toughest periods in her life since she separated mm. from her children's father however many years ago. Mm. Um, so I really don't know how um, parents, particularly single parents, are managing to cope with being lawyers as well. Absolutely because it's not just the physical you know, tasks that you have to do to make sure your child is occupied and fed and safe at the same time as you're working but I, I'm seeing concerns about lawyers saying well I'm I'm on a Skype call and all of papers in the house and I'm worried about what I'm bringing into the house um, in terms of the content of, of the work and confidentiality and just um, you know how the children are seeing me having to, to work and seeing a different side of me that I didn't want to bring into my home. It's very yeah. difficult for parents at the moment. 
Yolanda Pemberton and I did an Instagram Live for Women and Family Law a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about the difficulty drawing lines between work life and home life when your work life is now your home life. Mm. Um, And she was saying that, you know, the importance of having some kind of structure and routine so that you get up, work from eight, finish at five, and then stop and leave the room if you can, if you have the space, um, because otherwise it will be impossible to draw that boundary. Yes, absolutely. And I think I've had some comments from people who live in open plan houses and saying that is tremendously difficult because their work is literally in their kitchen. Um, I think one one thing you can do with that is have a opening and closing ritual so your space may be shared, but maybe something as simple as, as you know wearing a, a, a work pair of socks or lighting a candle or what you know whatever routine is it's a symbol really, but it marks a boundary in your life between I'm at work and I'm at home. Um, and then I think the the other challenge of that, of course, is, is almost training your family members if, if you're with other people at the moment to respect that um, and to signal to them that you will be available when the candle's not lit or the, the sign isn't on the doorknob or whatever you're doing um, so that they feel safe. They feel that, that they've got a parent that they can approach when they need one. Um, what hints and tips would you give to um, not just women in family law, women in general who may be struggling in lockdown? Because I'm sure those tips could be widely applied. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this and I've, I've, I've chosen three. I mean, there are many things that we, we all know we can do. I think the, the exercise and eating sensibly and, and all the, those kind of common things. But I've chosen three that are perhaps um, a little less commonly talked about, but things that have really helped me um, in stress in different circumstances. The first one, and I'm going to do them in sort of descending order of cost and time. So the first one, I, I would say this is a great opportunity to think about establishing a relationship with a supervisor. And when I say supervisor, I don't mean supervision in the regulatory sense of somebody watching to make sure you're doing your job properly. I mean it in the sense of using a professional, probably a therapist or a coach, um, to offload um, the emotional impact of your work, to discuss with them how it's affecting you, to discover sometimes how it's affecting you in ways that you're not noticing. And that's a practice that the other helping professions, people like psychologists, coaches, um, social workers and, and so on, have been doing for decades. And when I talk to them, they're absolutely astonished that we don't have that in our profession. Well, I, I, I wonder if it's the the stiff upper lip um perception that we want to give off to the world I th- there's definitely an element of that there's definitely an element of lawyers are supposed to have all the answers so we are supposed to be the strong one for the clients and of course we're not we're humans we're humans doing a job and we would do that job a whole lot better if we serviced ourselves if you like you know you take your car mm. to, the, to the service but we don't look after our own emotional health in, in that same way and it seems to me like a great opportunity when um, we've we've got some time at home when you've saved your commute, maybe if you're working at home, and you've got time to do some Zoom calls and to, to find some professionals to work with on a long term basis. Um, that's certainly something I would recommend. I have my supervision appointment set up for this afternoon as it happens. So um, something that I, I personally would do. A second second tip I would say would be to look at starting a mindfulness meditation practice. Again, doesn't cost anything, can be done in just a few minutes or a longer period if you can uh, get it into your life. Um, But our emotions are caused by our thoughts. And often those thoughts shoot through our mind in a nanosecond and we don't even really realize how much our mind is just full of bombarded thoughts. 
And so mindfulness meditation isn't about sitting in a lotus position on a cushion and trying to empty your head of everything, because we can't do that. That's not how our brains work. Our brains are full of thoughts all the time. But if we can take a little step back and learn to notice those thoughts, we can notice when we're getting caught up in them. And when we start to worry and become anxious, uh, we can release ourselves from that. And again, that's something very simple, but something that can be practiced in odd moments of, of the day. Um, and if people are interested in that, um, I'd say there are three apps I would recommend that are great. There's the Calm app, Headspace app and Insight Timer. Uh, there are others as well, but those three are particularly good. And if people are wanting to do something a little more structured, if they Google mindfulness-based stress reduction course, there's an eight-week course that's been tested um, since the 1970s, run a lot in America in law schools and big law firms, has had really good results on lawyers' stress levels, but also on improving their practice because it improves your focus and your concentration, your insight at the same time. So it's a bit of a double whammy. Um, and that can be accessed online. There's lots of providers um, in the UK uh, that do that. It's about a couple of hundred quid for an eight-week course. Okay. And tip number three, you said you had three. I have. Uh, this is one that I was taught by my own uh, coach, uh, a lady called Daniela Vanesco, who I trained as a psychosynthesis coach with. And what she taught me to do was to access an energy, a good energy, and to learn to react to my current situation from that energy. So often we, you know, when we're anxious and, and we're, we're juggling responsibilities and we're, we're thinking about our money and our work and our children, we tend to act from a very frazzled place. It's the lower part of our brain that will send us into either tears or anger or whatever is your go-to uh, reaction. And what she taught me to do is, is to access a better energy than I carry within myself, that we all carry within ourselves. And you might want to try this, um, even as you listen to this, this podcast, as I explained it, actually, because it's so quick and easy to do. And what you need to do is take yourself back in your memory to a place where you felt very serene, very happy, very free, very relaxed. And imagine with all your senses what it was like to be in that situation. So mine is a, a cove, a very small cove on the very tip of Tasmania. Um, I was there on a three-month sabbatical, and I remember standing there hearing the lapping of the water and the feeling the stones and the pebbles roll under my feet and uh, the big blue sky above me, and suddenly realizing that I didn't have a single ball that I had to keep in the air at that moment. Nobody knew where I was. I had no demands. And even as I'm reliving that in my own mind now, I feel my shoulders drop. I feel a smile come on my face. I feel my heart open a little bit. And it's so easy to take yourself back to that place and access that happy energy, that serene energy, and then react to what's in front of you from that. Who would that person be in that place? And how would she react in my current situation? And you may find that if you practice that, you can have two or three standard places that you can drop back into. So I also have a bench in California, which gives me a slightly different energy. It's a happy, excited energy. Um, and you can learn to access that whenever you want, just in the drop of a hat. Really good tip. I feel really serene just listening to you speak. Yeah. You're like the you're like the new Stephen Fry reading Harry Potter. It's oh, really good. So I will say that. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's so easy to do, isn't it? Just in that moment. 
um, that you can transport yourself somewhere. And all you're doing is changing your thoughts. I've got a few hints and and tips as well, which might seem incredibly obvious, but I think they're worth sharing anyway. Um, What I, I found in lockdown is there's a real sense of helplessness or a feeling of lack of control and what's helped me feel like I can regain a bit of control is doing community or charity work and I know that not everybody is able to do that um, because they might have an underlying health condition or they have to take particular precautions to be at home but if you don't have any symptoms um, don't have an underlying health condition like me and you're able to you know collect food donations um, pick up prescriptions for the elderly walk someone's dog because they can't do it themselves um, that makes me feel more helpful and allows me to exert a little bit of control over a a situation that feels like I have no control whatsoever. I'm also rubbish at being active at the best of times, (laughs) properly, properly rubbish. And I have, to the shock horror of all my friends and family been exercising every day um and I've been doing it with my friends because they can hold me accountable so we video call each other (laughs) mute ourselves and then do aerobics or yoga or whatever watching each other you know absolutely butcher these dance moves over video call and it's far more fun and I'm doing something and by the end of it I'm so exhausted that I sleep better and I'm not worried um or I simply don't have the energy to be worried Skype therapy so I've always, um, well, pretty, by and large, I've done therapy over Skype because I had a psychotherapist when I was living in London. And then when I moved out of London, I didn't want to change psychotherapists. So we decided to continue the sessions over Skype. And that worked out really well for me because my diary is so unpredictable as a barrister that sometimes I might get a, a case in really last minute. And when I thought I would be free to have the session, I now have to prep. So there's that flexibility of not having to travel anywhere and to just go, really sorry, can we, you know, have a chat over the phone an hour later? And I got very, very, um, well, this is a silly decision from me, but at the beginning of lockdown, because my diary emptied pretty much because we're not going to court anymore, I just had the odd telephone hearing, I was worried that I was going to feel the financial pinch of that further down the line. So I thought, okay, I'm going to cut some costs. And what I told my therapist is, I'm really sorry, um, but I'm trying to save some money right now. And I'm just going to suspend our sessions until things get back to normal. I lasted a grand total of about three days before I texted him again and said, take it all back, I take it all back. (laughs) And he, you know, credit to him, he did not say, I told you so. (laughs) But I, I think that having just someone to speak to once a week to be able to talk about the things that are overwhelming me and to have someone give their perspective on it and to maybe help you think about it from an angle that you hadn't thought about it before has been incredibly helpful. I know there's a lot of scepticism around therapy. I was very sceptical about therapy and it's not a quick fix at all. It's the sort of thing that you won't see any benefits from until you're several months down the line in my view, but definitely worth it. And Skype therapy is completely available It can be expensive, but what I find with some psychotherapists, including my own, is that um, they have, uh, you know, fees for different levels of income. So if you're struggling financially at the moment, you may be able to find someone who can offer you therapy at a discounted level. I also found a really, really helpful technique. One of the few helpful techniques I learned by the NHS. Um, So I I struggled with really, really bad anxiety for several years. And I still have flare ups now and then but incredibly paranoid anxiety where I would 
catastrophize absolutely everything, even though I rationally knew this is not something to worry about. And it's an exhausting way to live. And one of the techniques I learned is something called postpone your worry. And you can find it online at the, I think it's the Center for Clinical Interventions website. And it's effectively a time of day which is confined to worrying. And outside that time of day, you are not allowed to worry. So if you feel a worry surfacing, you just go, I'm not going to think about it. I'll think about it at 5 p.m. this afternoon. And then at 5 p.m. in the afternoon, you let all your anxieties bubble up for 15 minutes or whatever. And then you stop at the end of the 15 minutes. And that's a way of exerting control over uncontrollable anxiety. And it takes practice, obviously, because to, to tell someone who's worrying so much that they can't get out of their own head to just put it aside for a bit um, might seem silly. But if you do it enough times, you start to get into that mindset. And then you might find, like I did, that by the time you get to 5pm in the afternoon, you're not as worried about it as you thought you were. And then you forget about it altogether. I think they're fantastic tips. That last one reminds me very much of the um, the children's story about the big bag of worries. Well, they literally have a physical place to put their worries. And I know a lot of school kids do that with their teachers. And that might be something actually that if you've got children at home, you want to do with your children is to have a little box where they put their worries and then the family look at them um, later at night. It's a great tip. The other a couple of other points I was going to pick up on one um, fairly facetiously in terms of exercise. Um, I'm lucky enough to, to live looking over um, a, a field with sheep in and I found an old rebounder that was in the, the shed that of course I never use and we've dug it out um, and now I have some time every day looking at the sheep who are looking at me completely bewildered at this bouncing <laughs> human at the edge of their field and they don't quite know what to make of it but yeah I found that as well that exercise is a great way to start the day for me actually it's a, it gets me um feeling like there's a purpose to the day even though I, otherwise I might still be around in pajamas um, but the therapy point I completely and utterly agree with um, I think therapy is is a great investment it does cost money but it's well worth it and there's a book that people might want to um, read I think, I'm pretty sure it's available on Kindle if you can't get a delivery at the moment and it's called I Think You Should Talk to Someone, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, by Laurie Gottlieb, who is an American therapist. But she writes about being a therapist and some case studies from her own clients. But also at the same time, she is seeing her own therapist for her own needs. So you see both sides of the story about what therapy is like. So if anybody was wondering about what might happen when I go for my first appointment, that's a great book to, um, to assure you, I think, reassure you and, um, and let you know what might happen. I don't know what it is, but there seems to be this very English aversion to therapy. It's almost like, you know, the Americans do a lot of therapy, but sort of, you know, you don't need to go and talk to anyone about it. Um, I, I don't know what that is. It, it, I have a Californian friend who is um, also a lawyer, and uh, I've discussed this with her recently because at one point she um, was getting divorced and she has a child with um, some uh, issues of her own. And um, there were three of them. And at one point they had four therapists because they had one each and a couple therapist. And I joked at one point that it was only the dog that didn't have a therapist. And then later they took the dog to a dog therapist. So, it, it, you know, and I used to, I mean, she will take it from me because she's my friend, but I used to tease her about that. And then, of course, I found that um, I needed therapy and, and, and to completely change my position about it. Absolutely. And I think partly it's cultural. Um, partly it's in the UK. We live in this very closed way that we have this privacy um, and 
certainly I talk a lot about having feeling I have to wear a mask at work. Um, the, I think there's a judicial mask anyway that you portray yourself in a particular role all the time and even out of work, even in the sandwich shop. You know, I'm called Judge and not Helen and, and you're constantly feeling you're wearing this mask. So the fear of if I take that mask off in a therapy session and, and, and reveal my true self, will I ever be able to put it back on again was one of my concerns. And actually, yeah, it's fine because the therapists are trained to contain what you do in that session. So it's, it's very safe. And the first time I went, I, I turned up, you know, in my suit straight from work. And I'm a lawyer and this is going to be fine. And then just melted in tears. And by the end of the session, he put me back together and sent me out in the world perfectly capable to function. Um, and then we do that over and over again until I, I got through my difficulties. So, yeah, it's something I would definitely want to demystify for people um, and say it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful um, thing to do. I think legal professionals in particular, because we care so much about our reputations and for barristers, we depend on instructions. How we portray ourselves to the world is really important to us. And, and so we're worried that if we show any vulnerability, that people will judge us for it. Um, I mean, Helen, you know that uh, lots of people know that I tweeted um, about my mental health problems on on Twitter. And before I did it, I, I felt really compelled to do it because I, I I, I thought that we weren't having frank enough discussions about mental health. And before I did it, I was really, really worried that this is going to damage my career. No one's ever going to instruct me again. No one's going to want a barrister who's, you know, crazy or nuts or whatever. And actually, what I found is that a lot of that fear was in my head. And I had so many messages saying, well, I've been through exactly what you've been through. And I'm, I'm so glad that you spoke about it. And actually, I think what I found is that everyone, most people are having some form of mental health difficulty, but no one is talking about it. Absolutely. And it's absolutely rife in the profession. I have been stunned since I spoke out about my issues. Um, how many people have come up to me, um, you know, private at the end of hearings or emailed me um, to say me too, effectively. And I I, like you, have found nothing but support from speaking out. Um, and I think it's interesting, you, you, the words you used about you, yourself potentially crazy, nuts, you know, those derogatory things. Actually, the mm -hmm. way people see you, um, you as an individual, but the whole body of people who are open about mental health issues um, is more um, as honest, real, experienced, knowledgeable, wise, because people people resonate with with the truth and hiding it is not necessary um i mean i, I just briefly to, to, to say the beginning of my story i i knew i was struggling um i had a lot of stress issues a lot of burnout going on i'd put myself in counseling and then i had three security incidents in my court in as many days and at the end of one i just i literally couldn't write the order because i was shaking so much and i remember standing in a secure court corridor contemplating going to see my DFJ and knowing that if I walked past the usher's office to go and see her, everybody would know that there was something going on with me. Everybody, the, the staff, the judges, the bar, the solicitors, everybody would know. And in that split second, I made a decision to go and always talk about it because I knew deep down in my core that everybody should know about this. Because we're not alone and it's it's perfectly normal and the more research I do the more training I do on wellness 
um, I see that this has been an issue that, that has been around since the 1970s and, and probably before, but that's when the research I'm looking at started. Um, and yet we try to keep it in a box. And that's actually the worst thing we can do. Um, so if anybody is struggling, you know, talk to somebody about it, talk to whoever you feel comfortable about. But that's the first step, um, not only to making it better for yourself, but also making it better for somebody else. And I think that's a real encouragement for a lawyer, because that's particularly family lawyers, because that's why we're in the job, isn't it? We, it's not really for the money. Let's face it. It's because we want to make other people's lives better. And if you're struggling to do it for yourself, then be reassured that if you do it for yourself, it will also help somebody else along the way. And I think it's particularly reassuring for pupils, trainees, junior lawyers, when someone senior is saying to them, it's okay to talk about this. Um, It was really reassuring. Um, Helen emailed me after I tweeted and it was so lovely to read. I I welled, I haven't told you this, I welled up when I read your email um, and I just thought this is fantastic. And I had no idea that that was the kind of response that I would get. But to have someone more senior saying, you know what, I think you said something like, um, you've wrote in your tweets, Malvika, that you were worried that you might never get instructed again. But if I were a solicitor, then I'd want to instruct a barrister who's got that kind of emotional insight or something like that, you said. And it's really reassuring to hear that from um, senior members of the profession. And it doesn't happen often enough. Yeah, we're actually the ones who I think probably can do it in in a safer sense in that, you know, we as a judge, particularly, we have a job for life, you know, we're not worried now about getting instructions and, and, and the like we're, we're pretty safe and it's only our reputations if you like that we have to to worry about um and I think I just I just took a decision I would rather have a reputation for being honest and authentic um partly because that was what was causing a lot of my stress and I knew that the the um the not being able to be myself at work and being hiding my own personality my own interests my own needs behind this mask um, was one of the issues so it was a relief for me to to be able to speak out as well as um, something I thought was helpful for others um, but you know it works it works the other way around you know I, I sent that email to you when I read your tweets about what had happened to you because your emails helped me and it's a mutual thing you know it's not just a a, a, a one-way distribution of largesse from, from the top of a profession absolutely not um, everybody who tells their story um is is doing a, a real favor to everybody else yeah and I think that's why I, it's so important now if you're struggling during lockdown to feel able to speak out rather than to sit at home ruminating absolutely. <laughs> and not getting help yeah absolutely um and you know you can you can talk to anybody you know talk to a complete stranger if that feels better in terms of a therapist or um you know approach the approach one of us I'm sure or you know a family member it doesn't really matter who you talk to it's the act of talking that that makes a difference just thinking as 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 we talk actually just um about four weeks ago I stumbled across a book by a guy called Richard Martin and it's called This Too Will Pass and he was an employment lawyer who had a very serious breakdown and spent some time in the Priory and has written a very straightforward um, book-length account of his experience and and the treatment he had and how he recovered. And I read that and I was so so grateful that he had written that because his story is different from mine, but there were so many points of commonality. And every time I got to something, I went, oh, that, that, that was my experience. And I knew I wasn't alone. And that's 
I think one of the, the most frightening things about being unwell mentally is the loneliness of it. That you, you, you and well, I certainly ended up all in my head and, and thinking it was just me and there was something wrong with me, as opposed to now I realise I was human and it was a normal human experience to, to, to feel these things. Um, and so I've connected with, with Richard as well and got exactly the same response from Richard as you had from my emails because he was grateful that somebody appreciated his story so as I say there's that there's always that two-way um, process of of connection that comes when you talk out and that connection I think is what we're lacking when we're feeling ill sometimes what causes the illness and stress and anxiety is the feeling that we're all on our own by my count we are on day 23 of official <laughs> lockdown so we're really just at the beginning of um, the well-being challenges that are starting to crop up, what do you think that the picture is going to be um, for well-being and mental health in the legal profession a couple of months down the line? I'm I'm hoping that it will be a sea change in that people will have um, banded together and realised that uh, because we've got a specific event that's causing problems for everybody, um, that we start to talk more about it because it's it's opened up um, that debate. I fear the possibility is that when we um, come out of lockdown, that people will be so anxious to get back to normal that it will be put under the bed. And science shows us very clearly that we contain our emotions in our bodies. And so there's a real potential for us to get physical illnesses later down the line if we don't um, if we don't process this. Mm. Um, there's also, I think. This, this move at the moment and the president of the family division of course has just announced his rapid consultation process about how much are we going to keep of this remote working in the future and how much can we not do that and that's a debate for a, another podcast and, and for us to, to consider when we have um, evidence in of course but what I would say is I, I would really hope that we would embrace psychology as much as we embrace technology because we are not machines communicating with each other down the phone line we are people and uh, we will always be people and in family law particularly we work for and with people and um, we need to remember that in, in the future that whilst we can do lots of technological things it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing for our psychology to do so all the time. You know, I'm really concerned about technology overload because just after three weeks of lockdown not only am I working on the odd occasion I have a hearing, not only am I working on my laptop, but uh, I can't get books delivered as quickly anymore. So I was very opposed to Kindles, but I'm reading on my phone. I am working out over video call. I am speaking to my, I always speak to my therapist over Skype, but there's that as well. I'm speaking to my friends and family over the phone. And it almost feels like I've forgotten what normal physical interaction with anything is like. And that's fine temporarily. But if this goes on for much longer, I think that's really going to take a toll on my emotional well-being. But there doesn't seem to be a solution to it because we are working via Zoom. I feel like I've attended a million Zoom, Skype for Business, Microsoft Teams seminars. And I don't really know how we can avoid it. I think other than, I mean, we can pick up the phone which is a different experience to looking at a screen. It's still remote, um, but it does use little bits, different bits of your brain because you then have to imagine the person. Um, so it, it's slightly different on your brain because it rests your eyes. But I think, yeah, I think particularly people who are living on their own at the moment, there is no avoiding. And it's better to have that contact via Zoom 
um, and the social contact as well. Um, but I think it's also important to have a rest from that technology. When we talk about rituals before and cut off times of saying, you know, I've had enough blue light and I need to have a decent night's sleep um, so that we limit maybe batch when we do um, the, the online work. Um, but certainly I think when we come back, we will all be very, very grateful to, to see real people again. Yeah, and also I think I'm very worried about when we get back that there's going to be a massive backlog of work and that it's going to be completely overwhelming. So while mm. I'm having a lovely little break right now with your telephone hearing, I know it's building up to all those adjourned fact finds and final hearings that can't be dealt with right yes. now. Yeah. And the answer to that is what I've been saying to barristers for, for many years now is that you need to learn to say no and enough. Because just because it's building up does not mean that we have the human capacity to take on more than we had before the lockdown happened. Uh, and in fact, for some of us, let's be fake, honest, we, we, have, we don't have the capacity to do what we were doing beforehand, because uh, that's why we're all um, stressed. Um, so yes, there will be a backlog and we'll have to deal with that. But that doesn't mean that it's right that we all put ourselves in danger by overworking. That doesn't help anybody. Um, we'll just have a second, effectively a second lockdown where everybody is, is off ill because of stress-related illnesses if that happens. So learning to say, I will do what I can. This is the capacity I have. You can have all of that capacity to the best that I am capable of working, but you're not having my home life as well. That's sacrosanct. Is something that is really, really important that we all do at the end of this. Yeah, I mean, I feel very fortunate because I have a very supportive chambers, the chambers that I moved to to start tenancy. I was very open with them about my anxiety, my depression. And so I'm sure that there would be no difficulty if I said I'm just overwhelmed. I need a prep day. I, I need to not work. But that's not necessarily the case. I, I know that from, you know, what my friends and mm. colleagues have said to me. That's not necessarily the case everywhere, particularly the more junior you are the more scared you are about turning away work um, from your clerks and, you know, will they instruct me again or will they redirect my work to someone else who, you know, doesn't have a life and wants to just work like a robot? I, I think that's a very common fear and that has nothing to do with lockdown. It's probably it's accentuated by lockdown, but that existed with young barristers before I went through. I was a solicitor for three and a half years and then I, I spent 10 years at the bar before I was appointed. And I went through that because even back in the, the days of my being a junior at the bar, I knew that I needed some time off. And I took a decision at one point that I wasn't going to take court work on a Monday. Um, I did actually work, but I was doing a lot of lecture, lecturing at the time. And so I reserved that for writing advices and preparing my lecture notes. And there was a period, I probably maybe only a month or so, where the clerks would use that phrase, you know, Miss Conway, you're marked as away. Are you away or is it just away <laughs> away? because they, they would challenge that and after a, just a very short time of saying no I'm not working they completely respected it and I never had any problems and the two points I'd make to that one is that barristers employ their clerks not the other way around and sometimes that balance tips but I think we need to reclaim that and say actually these are people that we employ to work for us and to meet our needs not the other way around um and secondly, you used to slipped in a, a really interesting phrase there, which is, I won't get work from my clerks. And actually, the mm. work comes from your instructing solicitors. Yeah. So the relationships that you need to build up there are with your instructing solicitors. And, you know, if you talk to them about stress, oh, they know exactly what we're talking about. Um, because them too, you know, they, they, they get it. 
uh, and they want quality work. And um, you know, people do understand if you say, "I am, I, I want, I choose to do a good job rather than a lot of jobs," people will respect that. One of the things that my chambers has introduced, I haven't taken it up yet, but I think it's a really good idea. Is I, I think that every member in chambers, or all the junior members in chambers, now have a well-being mentor, mm-hmm. and it's just to say, "Well, we're here if you are." feeling low during lockdown or if some sort of issue arises to contact us and tell us if there's something that needs to be done and I think just knowing that there's a point of contact even if you don't take it up is really reassuring yeah yeah and again there's that point about seniority isn't it you can hide behind somebody or take the seat or take use of the seniority of somebody else um, you know, if two of you are saying the same thing or if your head of chambers says it to the clerks it, it, it somehow shields you from having to make that request I think that's an excellent idea. I'm going to um, start to round things off. Um, what I thought might be quite interesting, Helen, especially since you seem very, very well read on the subject of well-being and mental health, do you have any particular recommendations for books that might help people through lockdown? See, so you've asked me that and I've already given you all my tips. Um, I know, I know. Uh, apart from the ones I've mentioned, um, there's an author that I absolutely love who writes a lot, not so much about lockdown issues, but about um, therapy in general, who is a fantastic writer called Irvin Yalom. And he was the first one that my therapist recommended to me, he sort of mentioned him in passing, um, and then became quite frightened when he realised that I'd read his entire works in a fortnight. Um, and there's a book called Love's Executioner, which is case studies of therapy, and if you start with that and you like Irvin Yalom, then he's got um, a lot, including three novels, uh, which are also uh, worth reading. So I'd recommend him. Um, there's a book that I recommended, uh, sorry, that I discovered in Paris just a few weeks ago, which is where I was when lockdown started. Incidentally, I had to rush home from Paris. Um, and that's called... Um, this Too Shall Pass by Julia Samuels, which again is um, therapy case studies and uh, very much about change and how we change and what it takes for people to make changes um, in their life. Uh, so that's that's some recommendations. I um, have really enjoyed uh, Matt Haig's books. Have you read any of them? Oh, yes. Yes, I've got the first one. So he writes fiction and non-fiction. Um, and the first book of his that I read was Reasons to Stay Alive, which is fantastic. And there's notes on a nervous planet as well, which is really good. But his, his fiction's also really fun. It's a book called The Humans, which if you want uplifting fiction, that's that's a good book. Bella Mackey has written a book called Jog On. And it's about how she used running as a a way to help her deal with her anxiety I mean when I first read the blurb I thought this is the worst thing ever and to date I still haven't actually done much running but I'm hoping that at some point I'm going to look at it and go actually today is the day that I'm going to go for a jog and it's going to be really great and um, there's also Bryony Gordon has written a book called Mad Girl Um, I really like how so many um, authors are now reclaim, reclaiming those terms that, you know, you mentioned earlier, derogatory, like crazy, nuts, mad. And so she's written a book called Mad Girl. I think she suffers from OCD and some other conditions that I can't remember off the top of my head. But it's effectively a memoir and about how she struggled with it for a very, very long time and, and her journey through it. And what I like about all these books is they don't go, I'm fixed. And this is how I was at the end. And here is how you can become like me at the end of my journey. It's very much, 
we're all works in progress mm. and we're never quite going to get there but this is how we can manage our mental health if not conquer it yeah great idea and I think as well just read something that isn't about the issues that you're struggling um when I was traveling a lot at the bar and um you know was having problems being away from home and all the stress that that brought I used to read Alexander McCall Smith's number one ladies detective agency mm-hmm. and that's the first thing I buy for people now um because I call them bedtime stories for grown-ups because they're just so nice um you know, it's happy stories. And sometimes that's all we need, isn't it? Um, yeah, fun stories. Bedtime stories for adults, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me, Helen, on this on extremely short notice because I think we pulled this together just this weekend. Um, and I will post links on our Twitter to some of the things that we've mentioned so that people can follow up on our recommendations or on our tips and comments. That'd be great. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed speaking to you and I hope it helps everybody else that's listening as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Take care.